resume our study of uh, that uh, portion of God's Word. Um, I, I'm not trying to complicate matters. Um, I'm trying to thrill you with the profundity of matters. So forgive me if, if, um, if, it, if it kind of... There's more information here than you've heard of before. What I'm talking about is when I say <clears throat> the gospel, um, I, I wonder what you think of. Because um, uh, there's a different... There's, there's different ways to think of the gospel. For instance, you can think of the gospel Christocentrically. Or you can think of the gospel theocentrically. And I think in evangelicalism, what we tend to do when we think of the gospel is we think of it Christocentrically. Now, there's nothing wrong or bad about that. It just leaves off some of its fullness, is, is all I'm trying to suggest. Um, when you focus on the work of Christ, which is a wonderful thing to do, um, it, 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 it limits your understanding of the height and the depth and the breadth of the message of the gospel. Is, the, is it wonderful that Christ has died in our place? Oh, indeed it is. But ladies and gentlemen, there's still wonder way beyond that. Way beyond. The gospel, as it turns out, is far better news than we ever dreamed that it ever would be. I want to suggest to you that Paul is not Christocentric in his presentation of the gospel, but that he is theocentric. That is, he's not concentrating, nor is he asking you to focus so much on the finished and accomplished work of Christ. He is asking you to focus more on the work of the Father than he is the work of the Son. And, and we'll see some of that. Now, <clears throat> please don't... <clears throat> I'm not suggesting in any way that focus on the, the finished work of Christ is a bad thing. I'm simply saying the gospel is bigger than we ever dreamed. <clears throat> what I think we tend to uh, think of when we talk about the gospel is that Jesus died for our sin, and if we believe on him, we'll be saved. That's the good news. Well, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the good news is more than that. <laughs> There's more good news than just that. There's a lot more good news than just, uh, and, I, and, I, and that's almost heresy, I mean, not heresy, but irreverent to say, if there's more good news than just Jesus died, I mean, I don't mean to suggest that. I'm saying that it's broader, it's fuller, it's bigger. It's, it's, uh, it takes more of the heart to engage, to embrace it, than simply that. And I want to maybe show you a little bit of what I mean tonight, and, and it unfolds for us beginning in verse 5 of chapter 4. So let me, um, let me read you verses 5 through 8. Only four verses out of the book of Romans. And you will notice, um, I, I think, what I'm talking about when I say that Paul is more theocentric than he is Christocentric. To, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man 
to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, I, I, I'm a gifted overstater. Um, and I, I may be in, at risk of overstating something tonight. I don't think so. But I want to suggest to you, if you can fully grasp verse 5 of Romans 4, um, first of all, I think you will understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I, I think you will see far more to the gospel than just Jesus has died and saved us. And um, I think there's such incredibly good news in verse 5 for sinful men and women. Uh, so let's try to unpack it in all its richness. Um, Paul in verse 5 is going to state some things positively um, in one of the clearest statements on justification by faith to be found anywhere in the Bible. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, maybe the richest portion of uh, the book of Romans is verse, chapter 3, verses 21 and following. But there is nothing better and clearer in terms of a statement and definition about justification by faith than what you find in verse 5. Let me read it to you. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And remember we said that that word accounted is found ten times in this, book, in this chapter. Uh, it is translated imputed, credited, reckoned, counted. It's a, it's a hard word. The Greek word is logizomai, and it's a hard Greek word to, to get an English word to match it. But the, the translators are trying all they can to try and give you the fullest sense. Now, look closely with me at verse 5. It is a, it is a wonderful statement. Um, it answers this question. Who is the man that is justified? And it tells us two things about the man who is justified. The first thing that it tells us about that man is that he does not work. The first thing that you need to know about a justified man is that he does not work. Um, now, the man in verse 4, if you look up at verse 4 with me, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. That man's working. That is not a justified man. The justified man, the first thing that you need to know about him is, is that he's a man who does not work. He doesn't have the slightest notion that anything that he brings to the table is going to improve his standing before God. Nothing that he has done, this man who does not work, does not, he doesn't present any bill to God. God, this is why you should let me into heaven. See this? This man does not work. He understands that his works are not going to do anything for him in terms of his standing. He can present no bill because he has done nothing. This person who is justified does not work at all because his justification is, as you know, not based on what he's done. 
Now, guys, there, there is a, there's a little bit of risk of confusion at this point. When I say the justified man does not work, there is a risk there. Because then you, if you hear it wrongly, and I, and I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the evidence that there is sin still in us is that we hear this wrongly. We hear, okay, the justified man does not work. Okay, all right. That is really good news, Jimmy. I'm glad that you told me that. I am glad to hear that because now I will do whatever I want to at any time I want to, etc., etc. Now, the reason that that misunderstanding may arise is that you are confusing the doctrine of justification with the doctrine of sanctification. When I say that we're talking about a man who does not work, we are talking about the doctrine of justification. No amount of works, ladies and gentlemen. None of I'm not saying that a Christian doesn't work. I'm simply saying that a Christian doesn't work for his justification. <laughs> and you must keep that distinction. Does a Christian work? Darn tootin' he does. Does a Christian not work? No, sir, he doesn't work. You see, that, that sounds contradictory, but if you keep them in the right order, that is, in terms of his justification, I say to you the Christian is one who is justified by not working. But by no means conclude that Christians don't work. They just don't work for their justification. The first thing that you need to know about the justified man is that he doesn't work. The second thing that you need to know, and to me, ladies and gentlemen, this is utterly enchanting. The second thing about the justified man that you need to know is that he is ungodly. Uh, the text says, he does not work, believes in it, who justifies the ungodly. Now, gang, uh, first of all, you need to remember this. Who is Paul specifically referring to? He's referring to Abraham. Abraham was this icon for the Jewish world, and the, Jewish, the Jews thought, well, there's nobody going to get better than righteous father Abraham. And Paul has just called him ungodly. Uh, the one that, he, that they thought was the model of how you get into heaven, just work hard for it, Paul just called ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. And Abraham, though he was a very good man, Abraham realized that his good manness wasn't going to make a particles worth a difference in his standing before God. He was a good man, but he was by nature ungodly. Now, guys, do, do you, you put your finger there, and if you'd like just a little bit of confirmation about by nature, you might want to take a quick look at Ephesians 2, um, where Paul says, we are by nature children of wrath. Um, guys, you are born, it's in verses uh, 1 through, you can read 1 through um, 10 if you like, where Paul says, we are born into this world ill-prepared to leave it. We are by nature. 
It is in verse 3, ladies and gentlemen, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature. You are by nature, ladies and gentlemen, a child of wrath. You are by nature under the wrath of you are by nature ungodly. The good news is, what kind of man does God justify? He justifies the ungodly. Now, gang, this is the this is the principle that I mentioned last week. If you weren't here, you, this will be new for you, but I, I'm, I have to go back over it because I'm telling you, this little summary I think is a wonderful summary. I hope you understand it. I hope I'm can make it clear enough for you to understand, but this thing is, is unbelievable in its description of each of us. Samuel Eustace at Peccator. There is nothing more precise and concise about the nature of a Christian than that. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? Every one of you are this. Every one of you, if you're a, a saved man or woman tonight, you are this. You are, at the same time, just and righteous. At the same time, God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's better news than you ever dreamed. You are justified in the midst of your ungodliness. Now, naturally, I think, left, alone, left to ourselves, we would begin to think, oh, well, we're going to have to do something about this uh, being a, a, a peccator, a sinner. At the same time, just unrighteous. unrighteous. At the same time, just and sinner. Way to go. Who was that? Well, thank you. That's what, it, at the same time, just and sinner. Peccator is, a, you know, we get an English word, peccadillo, from the word peccator. It's a, a, a peccadillo is a small sin. Well, you are at the same time just and sinful. You know, guys, um, for some of you who deal with all kinds of guilt from your past, I'm sorry that you did what you did with your past. I, I really don't want to hear about it. Um, you keep it to yourself. I don't want to know any more than I have to know. And, and very frankly, if you've ever dreamed of a preacher being naive in terms of what people are up to, please erase that from your memory bank. Because we hear more in a... Uh, maybe not. We hear more in a week than most people hear in a month. Um, I made some phone calls just recently, and a woman, a, a woman, bless her heart, just spilled her heart to me over the phone. She's never met me. Would you tell your deepest secrets to a guy like this? But, I mean, my point is, guys, I'm sorry that you did what you did in the past, but I got some good news for you. God justifies the ungodly. At the same time, just and sinful. Guys, that ought to take a load off of you. 
You have been imputed. You have been you have been granted righteousness. And everything that Jesus accomplished, he accomplished for you. And even having that robe of righteousness wrapped around you, you're still ungodly. Justification does not, does not make you godly. It simply declares you to be righteous and acceptable in His sight. He's clothed you with something else, ladies and gentlemen. That doesn't mean that before we become Christians, we were as bad as we could possibly have been. But gang, any man who seeks to find acceptance before God by working himself there is an ungodly man. And all of us were in that state. All of us thinking at one time or other that the way to make him happy was just work hard enough to please him. That, ladies and gentlemen, makes us ungodly. And that ungodliness, well, <laughs> it is the ungodly that he justifies. Now, um, this verse, that is verse 5, um, is, is describing people that God justifies. And the good news is, it's people like me and you. But what does that tell us about the doctrine of justification by faith? Well, first of all, it tells us that justification is entirely an action of God. He does the justify. Number two... Justify, justification does not make us righteous. Now, guys, if you have come from a Roman Catholic background, that is a major distinction between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. If that is your background, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, their position is that baptism, uh, by baptism, we are made righteous. We have an infused righteousness. That's Roman Catholicism. Um, what you have here is a statement that God justifies the ungodly. Now, what does he do with the ungodly? Well, having brought them to himself and, and cleaned up their relationship between him and them, he then equips us with the indwelling Holy Spirit where we begin to improve as and clean up some of that ugliness. But ladies and gentlemen, the, that's the doctrine of sanctification. Justification is simply a, a, a legal matter, a declarative statement that says, not because you believe, but when you believe, God declares this ungodly bunch he declares them righteous. Gang, um, give it some thought. Give it some thought, you who, um, who struggle with assurance. Do you understand that, that what God does is give you something that you have, could have never gotten on your own, under your own compulsions and doings? He has given you something. And because you possess it, He regards you. He treats you as righteous. Gang, 
You're a righteous bunch. Not intrinsically, but imputedly you are. You have righteousness. You have been covered and wrapped in robes uh, of the righteousness of Christ. I, I'm telling you. You see, and, and notice, that's what God the Father is doing. That's why I say that Paul's view of the gospel is theocentric, not Christos. He's telling you what God did, what God the Father has done. It's, an, it's entirely a matter of imputing or regarding or counting or reckoning. You must get that straight. You know, there's a, there's a song um, that I love. Um, it's written by somebody you all know, Count Zinzendorf, uh, who was the, um, the founder of um, Moravians, I believe. I think I'm right about that. And, uh, and I don't know, we hadn't sung it around here much, but uh, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. In what am I arrayed when midst flaming worlds? I am arrayed in the righteousness of Christ. And my safety, the fact that I can in the midst of flaming worlds lift up my head and be joyous is that I'm wrapped in imputed righteousness that I didn't work for. It was imputed to me. What a gospel, ladies and gentlemen. What a gospel. You are safe because you've been clothed in the righteousness of another. Think about that. I mean, I don't, I, I'm not trying to sing. I just, just think about these words. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are my glorious dress. When the midst of the flaming worlds, I'll stand arrayed in these, and then with joy shall I lift up my head. <laughs> You're safe, ladies and gentlemen. You're safe because God did something. And I say to you, my friends, you are safe because God is committed to you, not so much that you're committed to Him. You're saved on the basis of his commitment to you more than you are on the basis. So you went out and you did a, a terrible, terrible thing, did you? I'm sorry. And there will probably be all kinds of complications that you'll bring into your own life because you chose to disobey. Yes. But you have not moved away from the posture of being declared righteous. So you're still struggling with something you know you shouldn't have done. You did it anyway. And it's caused untold pain throughout your family. I'm sorry there still be consequences of all that complications that you brought on because you made a sinful choice. But it doesn't change this. That midst flaming worlds, you'll be arrayed in these. And you can with joy lift up your head. That is a great gospel, ladies and gentlemen. And that imputation on the part of, a, of God the Father occurs not because you believe, but when you believe. Do you see the distinction between those two? If it happens because I believe, God is responding, responding to something that I did. But it occurs when I believe, which suggests that faith is the gift that it is, which Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Let me, let me hasten on. 
um, then we move to verse 6 where Paul points to a marvelous confirmation of this thing that he's teaching. Um, and he points to the confirmation in the other Jewish hero, David. And then he quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's just a quotation of Psalm 32. David wrote that um, 4,000 years, I don't know, 2,000 years before the appearance of Jesus Christ. David understood some things. Um, and he understood that the blessed man is the one who is right with God, that man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Think about it. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. What man is blessed? A sinner. A sinner? A blessed man? Yes. He's a blessed man, that ungodly devil, because God has chosen not to impute him or, or to impute, impute to him his sin. God will not put down this man's sin in his heavenly ledger. He has the right to do so, but he has covered them instead. He didn't mark them up in his book. He chose to cover them instead. And then it's interesting what, what, um, what Paul does in verse 6 because Paul interprets what David said in Psalm 32, giving us more of a positive slant on things because just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness. You see, here's the blessed man, ladies and gentlemen. The blessed man is the one who the Lord does not impute sin, but God imputes righteousness. And then he sticks it in there one more time apart from works. Here's the blessed man. God doesn't impute sin to you, but he does impute righteousness to you. The negative, he doesn't impute sin to you. The positive, he does impute righteousness to you. Um, folks, that's the description of the blessed man in the scriptures, the man to whom God has not imputed his sin, but has imputed righteousness. Um, you see, Abraham was called a, a friend of God, not because he earned anything at God's feet, but because Abraham understood and simply believed. And in, 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 as a result of that, God reckoned him righteous. David, think of that scoundrel. Doesn't it upset you from time to time to read in the Bible how, how lofty, the statements are in the description of David. But what was David? He was a scoundrel. In, in at least one episode in his life, at least one year of his life, he was running around with a woman that he found on the top of another guy's house and then having her husband killed. But blessed is that man that God does not impute, righteous, or impute sin, but does impute righteousness. You're a blessed man or woman. If that is true of you, I want to do. Um, um, I'm going to have to skip to this. Um, I want to read you something, and I, you know, I, I, I apologize every time I read you something, because um, 
reading to your to your students is not good pedagogy. I know that, and I don't do it very often. Um, I read rarely, but this to me was very rich, and it's very pastoral. And by that I mean. I feel like I know that in my own personal life I have struggled in this area and I know of several of others of you who have. If you've ever struggled with assurance, very frankly, if you haven't, you probably should. If you haven't ever struggled with assurance, I think you've probably come to it way too easily. Assurance is a wonderful, wonderful precious gift to the Christian, but... Um, well, you make the decision. But I'd like to read to you a page and a fifth out of a commentary by Martin Lloyd-Jones on the subject of justification. And, it, and he opens this by saying, Are you a Christian? And then he's going to tell you how you can find out how to answer that question. So, so sit there, ladies and gentlemen, and, and, and figure out does this describe me? Because if it does, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, this is very incisive stuff, in my opinion. Um, but I think it will give you a, a great boost to your confidence if you'll, if you'll just listen. Are you a Christian? This is how you discover the answer. Have you ceased altogether to look at yourself or to yourself in every possible way? Have you? Have you ceased to look at yourself and to yourself in every possible way? And are you looking only and entirely and utterly to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what He has done on your behalf? Would you know for certain whether you are a Christian? Here is the answer. Do you realize that you can do nothing, nothing at all about making yourself a Christian. I will go further. Have you ceased to attempt to do anything? Salvation is entirely the free gift of God. It is a gift which comes to the ungodly. If you start saying, Oh, but... I feel I ought to do. You betray your position. The moment you say, Oh, but, you show that you are not a Christian at all. Did that come out of your mouth? Oh, but. Now, now listen to this. this. I've never read this any place and I've been reading for 30 years. I'm a paid reader, as you know, but... This brings me to the most searching test of all. Do you believe now, at this moment, just as you are, that you become a Christian entirely through what God has done in Jesus Christ on your behalf? Now listen to this. This is a little curveball. This time element is very important. Let me go back and read this sentence. Do you believe now, at this moment, just as you are, this time element is very important. If you say, ah, now, but wait a minute. You do not really expect me to be able to settle that here and now. Ought I not to go back and decide that I must pray more? 
that I must read my Bible more, that I must stop doing certain things and start doing other things. The moment you begin to talk like that, you show that you have not grasped this doctrine of justification by faith. If you feel that you have still something to do about this, that you ought to weep, or that you ought to feel sinful, or that you ought to have a greater sense of conviction, or anything else, I don't care what it is. If you are going to bring anything that you should be doing, you have not seen it. For the doctrine of justification tells us that God justifies the ungodly as they are. Does not wait to make them godly first. Does not expect them to do anything. He says they can do nothing. They have got no works. This is the whole doctrine. Abraham just believed. He did not do anything. David says, Oh, the blessedness of this man whose sins are thus dealt with, which, how, which really means ultimately, says Paul, that he accepts this doctrine that God imputes righteousness to it. If you cannot see that, you can become a Christian immediately at this moment. If you cannot see that you can become a Christian immediately at this moment, you have not grasped the doctrine. The moment one sees this doctrine, one says, yes, I see that it is as possible for me to become a Christian now as it will be in a thousand years. If I withdrew from the world and became a monk or a hermit and spent my whole days in fasting and sweating and praying, I would be no nearer than I am now because God justifies the ungodly. Do you see the importance of that little time element he's talking about? If you can't see that God can justify then it's because you're thinking that I may need to go do something which undercuts the doctrine entirely. The good news, ladies and gentlemen, is that based on the merits and the accomplished work of the Son of God, God can not only remain just, but He becomes the justifier of those who do not work and who are ungodly, but embrace Him by faith. Oh, but you say, Jimmy, my faith is so flawed. Yes, it is. You're ungodly. You say, but I, you know, I'm not sure that I've repented enough over my... Yes, you didn't. No, no, you didn't repent enough. Because your repentance is flawed. The, the confidence that we have is not on what you did. It is on what God has performed. Imputing to you something that He Himself provided. Ladies and gentlemen, to me, I, I know that's more theological and doctrinal and biblical, but I'll tell you, it's richer than simply saying, you know, I believe I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven. 
not only has, G has the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, been heavily engaged in redeeming you, don't forget, so has the first person of the Trinity by declaring legally that though you are ungodly, he pronounces and declares ungodly people justified. That, ladies and gentlemen, couldn't be any better news, I don't think. Let's, let's quit. Our Father, how poor our understanding is of, of the benefits of being yours. The Bible says that we are seated in heavenly places and precious few of us, if any, have ever tasted of the benefits of thinking that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. The Bible says that we are resurrected with Christ and few of us, if any, have ever enjoyed the beauty of believing that we are resurrected. The Bible says that we can fight our sin not from being tyrannized by it, but from a, a posture and position of being completely and totally redeemed. And yet, we still lose battles with our own flesh because we have not yet seen ourselves in the this glorious position that is ours because everything that Jesus accomplished is now mine having been reckoned to me imputed to me I am dead to sin I am resurrected to a new life I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. All because you, O oh God, justify the ungodly. It is not good news, Father. It is the most glorious message of all. Might your the hearts and souls of your people be enriched by knowing that they are in a posture of utter safety, that nothing will ever separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, O oh God. We bless you and thank you and worship you for such a gospel as this. And we come to you this evening in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, guys. And good night.